It's time for a Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Friday, November 13th. That's right, Friday the 13th. We don't really worry about things like that. Today we're going to be continuing our series on the new perspectives on Paul. Two more editions, today's edition and next Friday's edition. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, Friday Light, that's a thing that we've been doing now for, well, more than a month, I think. And the idea here is is that uh, fighting for the faith goes until I'm done. Uh, It's one of those radio programs that is unique in that sense that I I don't have to hit hard breaks, and I try to, and... I mean really well, and um, and sometimes I wax eloquent, and uh, and the program goes really long, and so as kind of as a way of helping my listeners catch up, and and to make it so that uh, I don't have to prepare another three hours of uh, <laughs> radio. What we do on Fridays is we do a Friday light, and it focuses in on a singular topic. So we don't uh, we don't do news. It it it's you know in commentary and things like that. What we do is we pick a particular topic and then just stick with that one singularly. And for the past few weeks, we have been working through uh, the lectures uh, provided by N, uh, by uh, Kim Riddlebarger from uh, Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. He's the uh, co-host, one of the co-hosts of the uh, White Horse Inn Radio program, and he did an extensive series of lectures on the new perspectives on Paul. And uh, we've uh, listened to lectures regarding uh, Dunn and Sanders and now N.T. Wright and uh, their new perspectives each, because there's no one new perspective. And now it's time to actually get into critique. It's time to um, it's time to hear some rebuttal, biblical rebuttal to these new perspectives. And so t- today's edition, as well as next week's edition of Fighting for the Faith, will be playing the lectures where Dr. Riddlebarger provides uh, the biblical uh, counter evidence to these new perspectives and uh, and basically gives us uh, the biblical reasons why we need to stick to our guns and not adopt these quote new perspectives because here's the deal these new perspectives uh, we're not they're not found uh, in church history they're not found as part of orthodox christianity instead they're some kind of a uh, well, they're novelties, and so even N.T. Wright, as brilliant as he is on many things, uh, needs to be—he needs to have his doctrine and his teaching compared to the Word of God, just like I do, just like you do, just like your pastor does, just like anybody who claims to be a Christian teacher. What they teach needs to be compared to the full spectrum of what God's Word teaches uh, to see if it holds salt. And uh, you know, me being—you know—my goal being to be the most unoriginal theologian on the planet. Uh, most unoriginal apologist on the planet. It's you know, I, I really am too lazy to create my own theology. So I would, <laughs> I just would rather stick with <clears throat> what's been passed down. Just, just you know, that's just me. I, I'm getting you know old. The crepitude is creeping in, and you know, and just the all the energy necessary to come up with your own theology, your own unique ideas, and then to defend them. 
you know, and go through all of that. Ah, who needs it? <laughs> anyway, so without any further ado, here is Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on uh, and his uh, lecture, the first of two that we're going to be playing, that rebuts and uh, provides biblical counter evidence to the new perspectives on Paul. So I'll refer you to those. We're going to just hit on some of the major issues and hit them obliquely and quickly, just simply for a matter of time. But I do want to uh, point out some of the things I think are highly problematic with new perspective. And we'll do this in two parts. Tonight we'll look at things they hold in common, uh, some of the bigger picture issues. And then next week we'll look at some of the more detailed uh, matters, especially those pertaining uh, to anti-right. So as I mentioned before, the reason why I called this series The New Perspectives on Paul is because there is a great deal in common between uh, Stendhal and Sanders and Dunn and Wright. There are also uh, tweaking and individual positions unique to each of them. And in the first lecture, I also made the case, and I want to remind everyone listening again how important this distinction is. Uh, in our tradition, there is a tendency to collapse the federal vision and the new perspective into one kind of bad guy category. And a lot of our guys uh, think of both of these movements as bad and tend to combine them, conflate them together, without realizing they are two completely different issues with two completely different agendas, and they require two completely different responses. So as we have seen, in the so-called federal vision is really a dispute within the Reformed churches over various confessional reform distinctives, while the new perspectives on Paul, and I'll use the abbreviation NPP throughout now, is an attempt to completely revise our understanding of how we read the letters of Paul, to look at Paul now through an entirely new lens, an entirely new grid that will completely change the way in which we as Protestants have understood the Apostle Paul. So these are two separate things, um, and they require completely different responses. Now, as you know, as of February 1st, 2008, the uh, federal vision matter is now in many of the church courts as various Reform and Presbyterian church bodies uh, deal with these issues. So the federal vision is now being pretty well decided by the General Assemblies and Synods of the Reformed Churches. We're now getting down to specific test cases where individual men are being disciplined, and we'll watch those matters decided there. Um, as you know, um, Steve Wilkins has left the PCA for Doug Wilson's group, so some of these churches will leave in, in an exodus, and, and I don't know how many of these will end up actually getting to trial, but that's going to be settled within the Reformed Church uh, courts, within the Reformed Church confessions. The issues raised by new perspectives, entirely different thing, and that's a discussion that's going to be dealt with over time, and it's going to be a matter of exegetical debate, not only at an academic level, but certainly in a confessional level, and it'll take some time, and, and most of these hypotheses like these that make their way into the public uh, arena uh, require a fair bit of time, a fair bit of uh, debate, discussion, and it becomes pretty clear over time which side has the better arguments, which side has the better evidence, and so on. And we're at that point now where a number of responses have been offered to New Perspective by various Reform and Evangelical writers, and those responses now are kind of awaiting a response from the other side, and we'll see how this goes and what happens over time. Now, as for the New Perspective, its success will be determined by how well it can help us explain with the least amount of tweaking the theology of Paul. If, at the end of the day, this offers us a comprehensive way to make sense of Paul 
in his original historical context, the new perspectives on Paul will greatly succeed. But as I'm going to argue, the new perspectives seriously default at a number of critical points, and I don't think the new perspective offers us an improvement over the confessional Protestant reading. As a matter of fact, I think we'll see that it muddies the waters at a number of very, very basic points. So, as we respond then, I'll offer some general points of criticism of those matters held in common by Stendhal and Sanders and Dunn and Wright. And as I mentioned, next time we'll treat uh, more of the particulars, especially uh, those unique to uh, N.T. Wright. Now, I don't think new perspective is entirely a bad thing. I think new perspectives have been very helpful in the sense that it has forced us, especially as confessional Protestants who tend to like the safety of our confessions, it's forced us to focus again on Jewish-Gentile relations in the early church. That is the historical context for the debate about justification. That is the uh, discussion uh, that prompts a number of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Um, it's important to point out that New Perspective writers are indeed looking at Paul in this historical context. They're forcing us to consider the historical development and the uh, first century implications of many of those doctrines that we hold dear, and those include things like justification, covenant, righteousness, and so on. And that in itself isn't a bad thing. It, it's helpful, I think, especially for those in the, in the confessional tradition, to have something like New Perspective arise and challenge our basic assumptions and put those assumptions to the test. That's never a bad thing. And our motto, after all, is the church reformed, always reforming. Well, if that's true, then we should be willing to revise our theology if and when needed. And we hold open certainly the possibility, if not the likelihood, that over the course of time our understanding of Scripture will increase. And there will always be a need for reflecting on the text again, uh, asking some of the old questions in fresh new ways, uh, looking at the issues and seeing if, in fact, things need to be tweaked and improved. Everybody wants to be biblical. I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? And if this is the, uh, a debate that helps us do that, then so be it. But it's also my contention that at best, New Perspective is not helpful in advancing our understanding of key doctrines as taught by Paul. In fact, as I'll argue, New Perspective actually distorts the teaching of Paul on a number of critical points. Now, one of the issues that has got my dander up, as we have seen in as I started work on New Perspective back in the late 80s, um, when Sanders first published his uh, book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, back in the late 70s, we hit this, read this in, I think, 88. Uh, Dunn's uh, essay, New Perspectives on Paul, had come out just in 83, so this stuff was all starting to break. And from the beginning, um, New Perspective writers made it very, very clear that their agenda was to correct or improve the Lutheran or traditional reading of Paul. And that kind of gets, if you're a confessional reformed or Lutheran Christian, that kind of gets your hackles up. How dare anybody criticize our tradition or Luther? And then as you start to look through the history of New Testament studies, you realize that the foil here isn't Martin Luther, it isn't John Calvin, it's not even the Reformation or Protestant doctrine justification. The enemy here is Bultmann and the German critical school. And as I pointed out last time, I think we can safely say that much, if not all, of biblical studies in the latter part of the 20th century on into the 21st now is a reaction to Bultmann 
and Volkmann's uh, reading of law and gospel as radical antitheses, two polar opposite principles, as opposed to seeing law and gospel as two parts of the one word of God that can be best understood covenantally. So that when in Dunn and Sanders and Wright, in many instances where the traditional position is criticized, it's the traditional position that's come to them through Bultmann. And that uh, needs to be made, I think, clear as we tried to do last time. Now, while the New Perspective insists upon seeing the writings of Paul through the lens of first century Judaism, I'm going to talk about the merits of that shortly. The New Perspectives cannot explain the full significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially his cross, and the Christian's response to Christ's work, faith, and good works. We're going to see next time as we look at some of the right stuff, especially on propitiation and the nature of the atonement, what exactly is it that Jesus is doing? Dunn never really does give us an answer to that question. Wright's answer amounts to, at the end of the day, the atonement theory from Gustav Allen, the Swedish Lutheran, Christus Victor. They're just the triumph of Jesus, but very, very difficult to tell us what it is that Jesus is doing to reconcile us to God. What does that mean? So there's, there's a number of areas there where I think you'll find new perspective glossing over texts because those texts don't fit with their Second Temple Judaistic understanding of Paul. And I'll try and make that point next time. So I think sadly what happens is the new perspective ends up burying and obscuring Paul's soteriology in the name of ecclesiology. And that seems to be the ten tendency now in much of modern theological discourse. Ecclesiology is now the hot topic. If anybody's doing dogmatics, they're not doing soteriology anymore or doctrine of God proper. The cutting new edge now is ecclesiology, especially in light of third wave kinds of things with Pentecostalism and house churches and all the ecumenical doctrine, Rome and orthodoxy. Uh, that seems to be where all of the cutting-edge discussion is going. Now, as we begin to respond then, what do these men hold in common? And what are the responses to some of these kind of big-picture kinds of matters? Well, the first thing is Stendhal's thesis has pretty much been accepted by all the New Perspective writers, basically to the effect that Luther fundamentally misunderstood Paul. Um, and as I mentioned before, Luther, it's certainly theoretically possible, may have understood Paul, but the waters are muddied now when we discover that New Perspective writers tend to read Luther, not through the Lutheran confessional tradition, but Luther through the lens of New Testament studies. They tend to see Luther through the lens of Bultmann. Second thing they tend to hold in common, although there's some, there's some subtle differences, but these are things they generally agree upon. And that's the thesis that Second Temple Judaism was a grace-based religion, and therefore Judaism must be seen in terms of covenantal gnomism. Um, and that is a theology that is grounded in God's gracious election of Israel that sees works uh, not as meritorious or attached to the reward principle, the works as a means by which one stays in a gracious relationship to God. And therefore, we can't see Judaism of that period as a works-based religion or a religion tied to merit or reward. The third thing that these men tend to have in common is an agreement upon Dunn's thesis that there's some difference between Dunn and Sanders here, but Wright pretty much is on board with Dunn on this, that when Paul speaks of works of the law, 
He is not speaking of good works in the classical sense, but of ethnic badges and boundary markers that have divided Jew and Gentile in the church. And so you hear language in New Perspective writers that this is about status, not about a person's actions. This isn't about a person trying to do good things so as to be saved. This is about an ethnic badge that determines one's standing in the people of God, among the people of God, as opposed to one trying to earn or work or, or accrue merit for salvation. It's complete tweaking of that understanding. So Dunn will say this is a matter of status, not a matter of action. It's not a question of whether or not somebody's trying to stand before God based on their own merits or good works. Rather, this is a, an answer to the question, who is part of the people of God? Now, in response to the first matter, Stendhal's views on Luther, we begin with Stendhal's very erroneous assumption that Luther read his own struggle with sin back into the letters of Paul. You recall that Stendhal went before the American Academy of Psychiatrists and basically said part of the problem here is that Martin Luther was a guilt-ridden man. Luther was seeking resolution to his guilt as he was struggling with the Roman Catholic Church. And so he read his own struggle with guilt, his own desire to be right with God, back into the Apostle Paul. And in doing that, Stendhal says, Luther kind of responds to a false set of circumstances and it's Luther who takes the Protestant stream and heads it in the direction of saying that Judaism is a religion of works righteousness that reflects the rank Pelagianism of the Roman church at the time of Luther and doesn't accurately describe the Judaism of the first century. So in other words, Luther got the Protestant tra tradition off on a wrong trajectory and turned the letters of Paul into... Uh, epistles that are answering the question, how can I be right before a holy God, when in fact that's, that's what those, that has nothing to do with what these epistles are dealing with. So you find Luther to blame uh, for pretty much dividing the church. You find Luther's legacy to blame for these ongoing divisions that keep the Orthodox, that keep the Protestants, that keep the Catholic Church divided. And again, as I mentioned before, one of the things you have to know about New Perspective is its ecumenical agenda. Uh, as American evangelicals who probably don't give a hoot about international ecumenism, uh, this is huge for Dunn and Wright. Uh, this is a, a way to unite the churches. This is a way to flatten out the differences between uh, Judaism and Christianity. This is a way to make peace among the religion faculties at universities. That's what's driving this agenda, ultimately. And it's that nasty Luther and that hard-headed Calvin. It's that Reformed tradition that just keeps dividing the church because they make justification by faith alone. That one doctrine that divides all of Christendom. And it's those guys, right, Dunn and Sanders, argue that keeps the church divided. And it's Luther who gets the blame for this. And you see this in Stendhal's essay, and this is followed out by Dunn, and to some degree, right. Now, as critics of Stendhal have pointed out, uh, Stendhal was slapped upside the head pretty early on, but Luther was indeed a very insightful and faithful student of Paul, despite Stendhal's contention. And in the words of Stephen Westerholm, who is a, a New Testament scholar in the Lutheran tradition, uh, Westerholm argued in his first book, Israel, Paul's Faith in the Church, 
that anyone who thinks there's nothing to be learned from Luther's exegesis of Paul should take up a career in metallurgy. And I, I, you, a lot of us cheered when we read that the first time. Here was a guy basically saying, if, if you read Luther, the mature Luther, not Luther's glosses on Romans when he's still coming to a knowledge of the gospel, but read the mature Luther, Luther's commentary on Galatians, for example. Some of Luther's stuff, his occasional theology where he's dealing with these issues. It's really clear that Luther is a student of Paul who breathes the spirit of Paul. And while I think those of us on the Reform side, we want to do a little bit of tweaking to some of Luther's arrangements and certainly to some of the ways in which the contemporary confessional Lutheran tradition is understood, law, gospel, and other things. The fact of the matter is, Luther's very insightful. Luther understands Paul. Luther gets Paul. Luther understands Paul far better than Stendhal ever did. And I think Westerholm called Stendhal on that, and, and a lot of us cheered when he did so. Now, making Luther the bad guy is not only based upon a misrepresentation of Luther's reading of Paul, it's to reject nearly 500 years of Protestant exegesis, something which cannot be done lightly as the New, Test New Perspective men globally do. We saw that in the dialogue last time, where both Dunn and Wright, as they're explaining their, their methodology, as they're letting us know what it is that's driving this, both of them raise issues that they see as you know, fundamental turning points or, or, or uh, obstacles in the traditional reading of Protestants without any regard to the fact that, A, those aren't necessarily obstacles, and B, our tradition has spent a lot of time reflecting on those and offers more plausible solutions to those problems than New Perspective on Paul ever did. And it, I hope, struck you as it did me, the um, lack of awareness of some of the primary sources here and of some of the work that had been done in the confessional tradition that these men were just simply not aware of and had no interest uh, in being aware of. Now, in an essay, a very witty essay by Carl Truman from Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, the essay is entitled, A Man More Sinned Against Than Sinning, the portrait of Martin Luther in contemporary New Testament scholarship, some causal observations, of uh, casual observations of a mere historian. Uh, Truman argues that really the key here is to look at Luther's exegesis of Romans chapter 7. Because Luther now is working through the mature Augustine. He's arguing that in Romans 7, 14 to 25, Paul is describing his own struggle with sin which is a very, very important point. And this picks up on Stendhal's thesis. Uh, Dunn claims that that passage and Luther's supposed misreading of that passage played a central part in Luther's conversion. Well, if you've ever read Roland Bain, if you've ever read you know, anybody who deals with Luther, even the most basic of sources, you realize that Romans 7 had nothing whatsoever to do with Luther's conversion. It was Romans chapter 1, especially verses 16 and 17, where Luther's wrestling with that question, the righteousness of God. That was the text. It had nothing to do with Romans chapter 7. Now, it just kind of hits you upside the head that a man as learned as Dr. Dunn shows no first-hand knowledge of Luther's exegesis of that passage, of Romans 7 or Romans 1 for that matter, nor knowledge of the way in which Luther argued that Romans chapter 7 is the experience of every non-Christian. This wasn't Luther saying, gosh, 
I'm having the struggle with sin. It's in Paul. Luther, basically, by going through Romans 7, the way he did, said Paul is teaching us that the struggle with sin is the experience of every Christian. Now, for Luther, and for all those who have followed him, a non-Christian would never delight in the law of God. Can a non-Christian say of the law, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that I delight in the law? Nor would someone before his conversion lament about not having kept it? Would a non-Christian ever delight in the law and then lament that they hadn't kept the law? This isn't about Luther's burdened conscience. This is an exegetical debate about Paul's use of ego. I. Why in that passage, Romans 7, 14 to 25, does Paul speak in the first person? The apostle is describing his current experience at the time of the writing of the letter. At least that was Luther's position. That's the position I hold. That's the position that most in the Reformed tradition have held until recently. Now, that on the face of it tells us that Romans chapter 7 is one of the key arguments against both the New Perspective and Stendhal's thesis. Uh, Just one of many arguments. Because, as we all know, there is not a consensus, uh, even in the Reformed tradition now, in Romans chapter 7. But Luther finds Paul's struggle with sin in the text of Romans 7. And Luther never appeals to that at the time of his conversion, nor does Luther ever talk about that passage in relationship to his own conscience. It's clear that Stendhal doesn't understand Luther. And those who have followed along and accepted Stendhal's thesis, it's clear that they probably haven't done much reading in Luther either. And their form in Lutheran traditions up until recently have generally agreed with Luther's exegesis of that passage. That Romans chapter 7 is a description of the so-called normal Christian life. Now, admittedly, fewer Reformed folk hold to Luther's conclusions about that passage, especially since the publication of uh, Bernard George Kummel's essay on Romans chapter 7 back in the 30s, and now with the publication of Doug Moo's commentary on Romans. Moo makes the case that Paul is talking here about redemptive history, that this is the, the situation of a Jew under conviction of the law before the coming of Christ. I love Moo's commentary. I think he's just wrong on this. I think Cranfield's arguments... Uh, more than adequately answer uh, Moo and the rest. If Paul is talking about his experience as an apostle in that passage, then Luther's vindicated and the Stendhal thesis collapses. More importantly, Luther is coming to that passage and asking, asking exegetical questions. Luther is not trying to find relief for his sin by making Paul out to be teaching the same thing as the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It's not there. It's not in the original sources. It's not in the secondary sources. So Stendhal is, is just flat out wrong. Now, in any case, however we interpret Romans 7, there's, you know, I think the case is very clear that for Luther, this is an exegetical matter, um, and this is not the fruit of his own uh, burdened conscience. Now, moving on to the second point, Sanders' thesis that Second Temple Judaism is grounded in a covenantal gnomism and not in the kind of Pelagian works righteousness or, as he calls it, merit theology or reward theology. Um, Sanders, I think, makes a very important point, and there's much to learn from Sanders here. We need to examine all the Jewish sources. We have access to many, many more things than certainly Luther did, which, Sanders argues, will be our best source of information what the Jews of Paul's day actually believed. Well, 
that's kind of a red herring as well, because while I do think it's important to look at the sources that underlie uh, Second Temple Judaism from Jewish authors, as I'm going to argue shortly, we can't omit the Old Testament and what the Old Testament taught about righteousness, nor can we omit the fact that the New Testament, as primary source documentation, may tell us about what a particular strand of Judaism is teaching. It doesn't reflect all of Judaism. So to, to make the case methodologically that we have to understand Second Temple Judaism and understand the New Testament is methodologically flawed. Second Temple Judaism might help illumine our knowledge of first century Judaism, but the Judaism we're concerned about as Christians is that strand that Paul is responding to. And how did Paul appeal to Old Testament texts in light of that controversy? So I'll get flesh this out a little bit more as we go through. Now, I think Sanders' thesis does advance our knowledge of Second Temple Judaism. He's, he's getting us to look at these sources again. But surely he errs in missing the fact that getting in by grace and staying in by works comes very close, not to Pelagianism, but to the semi-Pelagianism. And what church was teaching semi-Pelagianism? The medieval Roman church. And what was Luther reacting against? semi-Pelagianism. And so the irony here is that if Sanders is correct, he may have actually made Luther's case for him. Because first century Judaism is not Pelagian. It's semi-Pelagian. The very things that Sanders and Dunn and company are trying to say Judaism taught actually come closer to the medieval church and the debate between the Via Antigua and the Via Moderna then does the kind of crass notion that Judaism is strictly Pelagian, and the Roman church is that's just not true. The Roman church condemned Pelagianism as a heresy. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Pelagianism is condemned by more church councils than Arianism is. This actually improves our understanding of Luther's debate by basically admitting that if Judaism is... Grace works. We're now talking about nature grace. There are lots of similarities now between Judaism and Rome and demonstrated to us by Sanders. So, in some ways, he's helped make our case. Now, furthermore, as many of you know, there are a number of scholars who begin to go through Sanders' research in very exacting detail, not the least of which, D.A. Carson and... P.T. O'Brien and Mark Seifried, and they have argued in justification of variegated gnomism, which is uh, certainly great devotional reading for all of you who, I'm teasing, it's pretty heavy technical scholarly stuff. They all right, I'm going to pause right there. Uh, <clears throat> we are up on our first break, and uh, when we get back, we will continue with uh, Dr. Riddlebarger's uh, lecture here, uh, basically walking through and debunking the uh, the premises and the, and the ideas of uh, the new perspectives on Paul, and right now he is attacking their uh, their premises and showing that they've they've been working with the wrong <clears throat> the wrong Luther, so to speak, coming through the liberal Boltmann, and uh, and that uh, they're working with the wrong text, and they do, they're really showing that they don't understand um, <laughs> really what's uh, what the uh, the the what Luther taught regarding law and gospel, sin and grace, and things like that. 
So uh, when we come back, we will continue with uh, Dr. Riddlebarger's lecture. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there again is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, 
a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. my bumper music by the way still i mean here we are you know a year and a half into this and still like it all right need to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio and it's your financial support your gifts that make it possible for us to continue bringing fighting for the faith to you as well as to other people and uh, right now we are in the middle of a of a fundraising drive if you would and uh, <clears throat> if truth be told we're about uh, well 20 percent of the way there we still got 80 percent of the way to go so uh, here's our fundraising drive. We're looking for a thousand of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. And uh, this is uh, basically you're signing up to have a mirror. I mean, we're talking barely anything here. $6.95 uh, automatically deducted from your account every month. And uh, when you sign up, you also uh, will be receiving an email that uh, gives you access to us, to our uh, growing treasure trove of plundered theological resources uh, known as the Pirate Christian Cove, a safe harbor of, of good stuff to help you go deeper into uh, God's Word, sound doctrine, and biblical theology. And it's a it's a great resource, and you get access to uh, uh, our uh, every other week webinars that we do on uh, biblical and doctrinal topics. Uh, even if you can't attend it while it's occurring, you, uh, you the, the recordings of it go up at the Cove. So uh, it's a it's a fine resource, and uh, again, it's a it. it uh, when we get to a thousand uh, signups, a thousand crew members, then it guarantees it on a monthly basis that we have the minimum uh, expenses that we need to operate. And uh, from there, we'll talk about further, <laughs> further uh, ways of uh, supporting PCR and fighting for the faith, so that we can expand our footprint, so to speak. By the way, we're now uh, the number three talk radio uh, station on the entire Live 365 radio network. I. I don't know if you guys uh, you know follow our, our stats and stuff like that, but I mean we're the number one uh, uh, Pirate Christian Radio is the number one uh, talk Christian talk radio station on Live 365, and we're the number three talk radio station of all the talk radio stations on the Live 365 radio network, which we're we're really excited about and very proud about. And uh, again, uh, thank you very much for supporting us. So, how do you join our crew or support PirateChristianRadio.com? 
you go to uh, fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew, or click the Donate button if you'd like to give a flat amount. And uh, and uh, when you fill that out, uh, within a, a few days, you'll receive an email from cove at piratechristianradio.com. Click the f- make sure your spam filter uh, knows that the email is coming, and uh, which will give you access to our Pirate Christian Cove. And uh, if you'd like to uh, send your gift in, you can do so by mailing it to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're in the middle of uh, Dr. Riddlebarger's lecture uh, on the uh, new perspectives on Paul. And right now, this this entire episode is dedicated to basically picking apart and the, the flaws in the uh, new perspectives. And so with that, we're going to continue listening to Dr. Riddlebarger. I've made, I think, a pretty compelling case that the Sanders thesis on its most basic level, is utterly misleading. Because the sources from which Sanders develops his covenantal gnomism are incredibly complex. Now, we're not going to find, in the first century, documents that teach we're saved by works, or documents that teach we're saved by grace. What we find are things like this famous quote from Rabbi Akaba. And this is the kind of language you find throughout these sources. The world is judged by grace, it all is according to the amount of works. Now, does that support Luther? Does that support Sanders? Is that grace alone? Is that merit? Is that works righteousness? You tell me, what does that mean? The world is judged by grace, it all is according to the amount of work. This is complex stuff. It's not easy to sift through this and to find any kind of coherent, cohesive uh, evidence that pushes Judaism to one side, the Pelagian side, or the grace side alone. It's complex. It's complicated. It's diverse. And so Sanders' thesis can only be maintained by ignoring, I think, the problem of the complexity of the sources. When Sanders maintains that Second Temple Judaism was a religion of covenantal gnomism, in by grace, stay in by works, ironically, he can do that only by a very selective reading of the sources. But that's the very thing he accuses his forebearers of doing. Um, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, is it not? And so while Sanders proposes that his covenantal gnomism is an alternative to what he calls merit theology, Sanders cannot account for the fact that within the same sources that stress Israel's divine election in by grace, there are a number of texts that teach something very much like merit theology. And you find people saying things like Rabbi Akaba did in different ways, that there has to be sufficient work, sufficient obedience, sufficient behavior to merit or to justify divine reward and reception of the inheritance. And so, if sufficient works are required to maintain one's place in the covenant, how is that not merit or reward? Then there's a simple fact that one of the best sources of information about first century Judaism comes from the pages of the New Testament. We simply can't assume that the New Testament does not accurately describe at least one strand of Jewish theology or Jewish teaching. Um, Paul is responding to something. 
what is Paul responding to? Well, he's responding to the problem that we see in the church such as Galatia, in a congregation such as the church in Rome. We see him responding to a heresy in Colossae, in the Lycus Valley, the church of Laodicea, and so on, wherein Jews and Gentiles both come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jews now insist that Gentiles live as Jews. And it creates this whole set of pastoral problems in that Jews now cannot understand why it is that Gentiles eat gross stuff. You can stuff it into an intestine. Gentile probably did it, you know. Uh, They eat parts of the, the animal that we're not supposed to eat. Their sexual morality is just horrible. So how can, and they're certainly not circumcised, so how on earth can they be part of the covenant community if they're not living as people are supposed to live? Meanwhile, the Gentiles are asking their their pastors and their Jewish friends, who's this Moses guy you keep talking about? The Gentiles have no knowledge of Judaism. They have no knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, all of a sudden, Jew and Gentile are in the same covenant community, and there's a collision. Now, new perspective is very, very helpful to remind us that that is one of the principal dynamics going on in the New Testament. But can we understand that dynamic best by looking at Second Temple Judaistic sources or by looking at the New Testament documents themselves? And it's obviously the latter. Methodal. See, that's the important question. What are you going to look to? I mean, you're going to look outside of the scriptures to uh, try to figure out what's the best source of understanding Second Temple Judaism. And see, again, that's kind of looking at the wrong thing. Listen, the scriptures contain in them everything you need to understand uh, what is you know what is required and how men are saved, and it even it, it even includes all of the cultural information that you're going to need in order to understand the scriptures. Believe it or not, uh, it, it's absolutely you know sufficient is the right way of putting it. And looking at Second Temple Judaism is looking at the wrong thing. You need to look at uh, <laughs> pre-temple Judaism as laid out in uh, the, the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses. We continue. Logically, we're going to identify the source of the problem by the occasional epistles the apostles write to deal with those very problems. So there's a, there's a sense in which, unless you understand Second Temple Judaism, you can't understand the New Testament. And I think we have to resist that temptation and say, no, these letters... Um, have different contexts. Uh, there's, a, there's a major problem here, and that's the coming of Christ. Jesus turns everything upside down. Jesus wrecked whatever consensus there was in Judaism before he came. That's the issue now. And so all of that is to say, while Sanders, I think, has helped us to understand the role of grace in Judaism and, and to for us, us as Protestants especially, not to read the Roman debate back into Judaism. I think that's a perfectly legitimate concern. On the other hand, um, Sanders' own proposal that we read all of Judaism and Paul through the lens of covenantal gnomism is at best reductionistic, if not flat-out wrong. There is no evidence anywhere that Paul was a covenantal gnomist. None. As we'll see, Paul argues just the opposite. So I think this thesis, at the end of the day, uh, not only 
does not help us understand large blocks of Paul. It actually obscures passages that were clearer before Dunright and Sanders began to work on them. Now, the same thing I think holds true for Wright's reading of these same sources. Um, this is a major theme in, in the writings of N.T. Wright. You'll find it in his uh, book on Paul. You'll find it in what St. Paul really said. I didn't have time to touch on it last time, but I, I think it's important we draw this out. One of Wright's major theses is that the Jews at the time of Paul's, they saw themselves living at a, at a time of exile. And Wright argues then that Jesus' death and resurrection is God's solution to Israel's problem of living in exile. But, you know, that's not the case, because the key Old Testament text, which Wright appeals to support his view, is very widely and diversely interpreted by Jewish writers. They, they don't all appeal to this passage as supporting Israel's current exile. As a matter of fact, Jews themselves don't agree on what that passage from Deuteronomy means. And that certainly undercuts Wright's thesis that Judaism was in agreement upon this. We don't have any evidence that Judaism was in agreement upon this. An even greater problem for Wright is the absence of the exile notion in Paul. Paul never speaks of himself or Israel in those terms. Uh, not at all. It just doesn't fit with the sources. Now, we find nothing in Paul's writings to support Wright's thesis that Christ is the solution to Israel's problem. A people living in exile, uh, Christ is the solution. So it's solution, Christ, problem, exile. Rather, the coming of Christ, remember, creates a huge problem for Israel. When Jesus appears on the scene, some Jews come to faith in Christ, while others don't. Christ creates a problem for Jews. And that flies directly in the face of Wright's desire, typical of the new perspective driven by this ecumenical agenda, to kind of flatten out the differences between Jew and Gentile and have one people on a kind of a contiguous scale, Jews on one end, Christians on the other, and never really explaining why it is that Christianity is different or distinct or unique from Judaism. That's still left hanging out there, as we'll see in just a minute. There's, there's just no evidence for this that, that I find, or the vast majority of Pauline scholars find in um, the writings of Paul. Furthermore, when you look at other New Testament letters from the same time, roughly, say First Peter, the opening part, James chapter 1, same thing, um, the coming of Christ didn't mean that Israel was no longer in exile. The coming of Christ meant that Christians were now in exile. The Christians are pilgrims on their way to the heavenly city. And so the motif then is that Christ brings us into exile, in a sense. He's calling us out from the nations, and he's taking us in a new exodus, under a new covenant mediator Christ, to a better inheritance. It's just the opposite. Christ doesn't come to give Israel a home from exile. Christ comes to call all of his people out of the world, and he takes them in an exile, leads them, in a new exodus, toward the heavenly city. So I just don't find Wright's thesis to make sense of the, the situation in the New Testament. And I think there's a significant response to Wright at that point. I'd be interested to see how he would respond to that. Now, the primary methodological error 
common to Sanders and Dunn and Wright, is that in their minds, as I mentioned, the key to understanding Paul is the reconstruction of Second Temple Judaism. Um, it, if, if you kind of follow this through, I think you can see why they come to the conclusions that they do. Now, if in their minds, to be fair to them, Second Temple Judaism is grounded in covenantal gnomism, then by definition, Luther's reading of Paul cannot be right. Because Paul cannot be responding as a Christian apostle to a religion of works righteousness. If Jews never taught that, Luther has to be wrong. You with me on that? If their understanding of Second Temple Judaism is correct, then Luther just totally screwed things up. So the card is before the horse, to speak. But that kind of operating assumption leads to the question, okay, then what is Paul opposing? Was Paul objecting to Judaism because it wasn't Christianity? That's basically where Sanders comes down. Well, the problem with Judaism, it wasn't Christianity. Oh, that's helpful. That tells me why Paul says to the Galatians, you stupid Galatians, how quickly you've departed. You're not Christians. No. He accuses them of something very specific. I came to this region of Turkey, Galatia. I preached the gospel to you. I was laid up. I stayed with you guys. You took me in, and then I left. And no sooner did I leave than men from Tarsus, men from Antioch, began to come around, and they began to do what? They began to say that unless you were circumcised, unless you kept the feast days, unless you did X, Y, and Z, you could not be justified. So, in some sense, the New Perspective guys have the problem downright, but what's the solution if they're right about Second Temple Judaism? Um, why is Paul so angry? Was Paul just objecting to the fact this is a, a racism, that Jewish ethnic and racial boundaries were excluding Gentiles needlessly from the people of God? Is that what provokes such apostolic anger? Or is it the fact that if what the Judaizers were teaching caused people no longer to trust in Christ, they might be eternally condemned? That's the language Paul uses. So do the proposed NPP solutions to the, the supposed problem in Galatia adequately explain the issue that Paul's addressing? Does that reconstruction of covenantal gnomism, Second Temple Judaism, does that give us the problem that prompts the book of Galatians? No, it doesn't. It becomes very implausible, actually. Now, since new perspective presuppositions are relatively new, and in fairness to Stendhal, Sanders, Dunn, and Wright, they acknowledge their position is relatively new, uh, because a position is new doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But again, you know, throw these things out in the, the marketplace of ideas. They're hypotheses that are tested by collective minds, the, the uh, peer review process that takes place, the writing of essays and exegetical papers and arguing these things out over a period of time. We'll come to some resolution. But since 
new perspective presuppositions are relatively new. There are kind of two additional consequences that arise that have created some of the angst in, in our churches. Now, appealing to Second Temple Judaism might help us understand Paul better, but it has the negative effect of not focusing upon Paul's use of the Old Testament. As a, as a pastor and as a New Testament guy and as a theologian, I want to know why Paul picked the particular passages that he did from the Old Testament to refute whatever it is that he was challenging. I think the key is the exegesis of the Old Testament passages and Paul's use of them. Uh, that's a huge factor in understanding the interpretation of Paul. But instead of concentrating upon Paul's use of these Old Testament texts, they read Paul through their own critical reconstruction of Second Temple Judaism, extra-biblical sources that may or may not even be the issue in these cities where Paul is addressing matters. And that, as we've seen, probably can't be sustained, certainly to the degree of certainty to which Sanders and Dunn would lead us to believe it can be sustained. So methodologically, you've got some serious problems here in that you set up a critical reconstruction of second temple Judaism, tell us then we can't understand Paul unless we understand that, then we figure out your proposed model of second temple Judaism probably is reductionistic and may not even be the issue in Galatia and ignore what the New Testament tells us about the problem, only then can we understand Paul? I think that should make us all a bit nervous. I think that should make us all pull back a little bit and say, I don't think so. That's one problem. The other problem is something that, you know, it's one of these pendulum swings in, in church history and biblical studies. By eschewing systematic theology, again, in the contemporary church world, there are fewer and fewer professors of theology and more and more professors of biblical studies because, you know, you, you have this mindset in the contemporary uh, academic world, that systematic theology, systematizing is an inherently Greek rationalistic operation. In, instead of systematizing, you should come to the scriptures without any system whatsoever, run with it, let them take you wherever they take you. And part of me, by the way, likes that. Then there are no confessional boundaries, there are no ecclesial boundaries. You, you have guys able to go off wherever they wish to go and then tell us, hey, I'm just a biblical theologian. I'm in touch with the text. You, on the other hand, are a rationalist. You're trying to make all of this fit together in a system. Well, perhaps one of their own compatriots, Christian Becker, helps us out here. When Becker says, look, if you look at the letters of Paul, you end up with a pretty good body of coherent theology applied to a contingent situation. Paul's a pretty systematic thinker. At least I think so. So to, to poo-poo systematic theology, to, to trample over confessional boundaries, all of which, by the way, they say are the result of this prior misreading of Paul, you end up with this kind of triumphalistic attitude by modern biblical studies people, by modern biblical theologians, especially in Dunright and Sanders, that they alone are reading Paul correctly and everybody else got it wrong. Now, N.T. Wright is one of the nicest guys around. As I mentioned before, I think he's the second best living 
theologian in terms of his communicative skills. He's a mensch. He's a great guy. He gets it. Everything he's ever written is a delight to read. Everything he's ever written I've greatly profited from. But there's a sense in right. I have scripture. You have tradition. Now, it's rather ironic as a confessional Protestant taking great pride in the fact that Rome has tradition and I have scripture. I don't like being on the other side of that. Um, and it's kind of weird to, to have that card played on you, as, of course, we have delighted in doing to, to Rome. So, challenge taken. And what concerns me, as I mentioned before, about, especially in light of that dialogue we saw last time, is right and done, certainly, are not very aware of the fruit of some of the systematic thinking, and right and done would benefit greatly by reading Calvin again, by reading people in the Reformed tradition who've worked in covenant theology for many, many years, like John Owen and like Francis Turretin and others who have dealt with the very same questions and who have come up with far more satisfactory and far more plausible explanations and answers. And for Wright and Dunn to act like we're the first guys to ever have discovered this is just kind of breathtaking. We'll pause on that thought. We are up on our second break here at Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith. Uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, please do so. We'll continue with our critique of the new perspectives on the other side of this break. Um, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com is my email address. You can follow me on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy frenzy turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection? was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, 
and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top Ten Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, we're back. Finishing up our edition of Fighting for the Faith here today. On the new perspectives on Paul, it's Friday Light. like to go a little deeper on Friday Light and just cover one topic. And boy, is this an important one. Okay, with that, here is the balance of Dr. Riddlebarger's uh, critique of the new perspectives on Paul. This is uh, week one of his critique. Next week, we'll, oh, we'll finish it with, uh, with the week number two of his critique. But we continue here. Uh, with Dr. Riddlebarger critiquing biblically and uh, scholarly. Uh, is that, did I use that word right? Well, you know what I mean. Here we go. And you saw that in that dialogue. And if you haven't read that, I really encourage you to go back and read that because that really lets us in on, on some of their thinking here. Now, this, you know, kind of the problem in the modern church that the biblical, the, the biblical theologians, the, the uh, Bible department guys, have to tell us what Scripture means. And I think that should make us all very, very, very nervous. I'm with Luther on this. Every German plowboy who picks up God's word can understand the basic message of Scripture. And we do not need an educated Illuminati to tell us what Paul actually says. And my challenge to New Perspective people is, I guarantee you that when the German farmer picked up Galatians, he did not read it the way Dunn reads it. It doesn't mean the New Testament, doesn't mean Dunn's wrong, it doesn't mean the farmer's right, but my guess is the farmer, by reading it on its face without that kind of pre-understanding, gets at, the, what, at Paul's message a lot quicker and a lot faster than, than some of those who are laden by these presuppositions would ever find the heart of Paul. 
Now, the next area of critique is the uh, general acceptance of Dunn's thesis that Paul's phrase, works of law, does not refer to good works done in efforts to conform to the commandments of God and thereby earn merit or reward uh, salvation. Now, here we can only skip through. This is a complicated exegetical matter. I'm going to go on the surface of it just so I don't put all of you to sleep. But I would really challenge you to read the books we've assigned. Uh, Piper's response to Wright's interaction with Piper is very, very helpful here. Uh, You'll find Guy Prentice Waters very good on this. You'll find Stephen Westerholm very helpful here. Go back and look at uh, uh, Doug Moo's commentary on Romans interacts with this. Uh, go back and read some of these arguments, and you've got more time. We can, you can do it in more detail uh, to this matter of works of the law. Now, as Dunn sees it, the phrase refers, as we've seen, to ethnic badges or boundary markers that distinguish Jews from Gentiles. And so, according to Dunn, when Paul uses the phrase works of law, he's saying something like, you don't have to be Jewish to be righteous. Works of law does not refer to good works that you do or any merit you've accrued or any desire to be rewarded through your obedience. It refers to the language of being righteous. In other words, Jews aren't the only ones who are righteous before God. By faith, everybody's righteous before God. That's what he's basically saying. Now, Wright tweaks this ever so slightly, and he interprets this phrase along the lines we have seen the last couple of weeks when we've looked at his uh, idea of justification, final justification on the basis of a whole life lived, which is a bald Pelagianism. Um, Wright says this phrase is basically a determination in the present of who will be righteous when God finally acts to fulfill his covenant obligations. I guarantee you when the German farmer picked up the German text that Luther had translated from Galatians, that's not what he got by reading Galatians. I think we can be very, very sure of that. Now, by way of response, several things have to be said. And again, my apologies for skimming over this so lightly, but um, this is really not the proper place to do exegesis of complex issues. But by way of response, um, several things we just have to say. Mark Seifried has pointed out that many times in the uh, Second Temple Judaistic sources, the phrase refers to ethical matters, uh, never as a racial marker when used in Jewish sources. So it's very difficult for uh, Dunn to sustain his thesis that this is the Jewish understanding of the phrase works of the law when the sources themselves aren't, never say that. And I refer you to Seifried for the argumentation. Uh, the problem is that Dunn and Wright are finding nuances here that Jews themselves never argued for. And that ought to start to, to tip you off. You know, the, the, the red light ought to be the temperature gauge on your dash is going up. You know, your, your battery light starting to come on. Something's not right here. When phrases that are so fundamental can only be understood with this really precise nuance that nobody else seems to have ever argued for before. That ought to make you just kind of you know, something's not quite right about that. doesn't mean it's on the face of it's wrong, but it means it's going to have to assume the burden of proof. Something just isn't five bitty cap it there. Now, a quick review just of some Pauline passages, I think, will show that Dunn's thesis absolutely cannot be sustained. In Romans 11, 5 to 6, let me read for you the passage. And there's a bunch of these, and I'm only going to touch on a couple. 
Um, Piper pulls out passage after passage after passage that you would think Wright had, had never read before because it just chops off almost every, every point he makes. There's, a, there's two or three verses that say the exact opposite, and Piper does a masterful job of that. So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the language here sets up a contrast between grace and works. Now, how on earth does that contrast make any sense if works of the law is simply a declaration that Jews and Gentiles are both in. It doesn't. It just doesn't fit. Paul here is speaking of a clear contrast between a works principle and a grace principle. Romans 10, 4 and 5 is another place where it just jumped. This is throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3 and 4. I mean, this is just every place. So, Wright and Dunn see that in an ethnic sense. But in light of verse 7, where Paul's speaking of human effort, basically works, human effort, he's not at all talking of status. He's talking about human... How on earth can you get status out of human effort? Obtaining. It just doesn't fit. And there's a bunch of these. There are probably 30 of these in the New Testament where the new perspective just kind of trips over itself trying to explain these. Romans 3.20. Dunn says Paul must be speaking of circumcision. Let's read Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, through works of the law, through circumcision, is that what Paul's talking about there? Through works of the law? It must be an ethnic marker. It can't be effort or merit or earning. But the context tells us that Paul is speaking of how the law condemns not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Remember Romans chapter 3 comes at the end of that section where Paul in Romans 1:18 through the end of Romans chapter 1:32 he's he's shined his floodlight on Gentiles who do all kinds of ungodly things and then in Romans chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3 he turns the searchlight on Israel you blind guides you want to start with obedience then back in chapter 3 he turns the flood this is a reference to Jews and Gentiles not just Jews who are using racial badges or boundary markers to exclude Gentiles. This is a reference to Jew and Gentile. So it simply doesn't fit them with this interpretive grid that has been forced onto the text. Now, I take great delight in reminding my hearers of that because what's the argument we hear again and again from biblical theologians in response to Reformation Orthodoxy? You guys are rationalists. You keep forcing your covenant theology on the text. <clears throat> Who's forcing the grid on the text here? Um, the shoe's on the other foot on this one, guys. Romans 4, 4-5. Dunn argues that Paul, that's the passage where 
Paul says of God justifying the asabe, the ungodly, the wicked. And Dunn says Paul's not criticizing a merit theology, but he's reflecting on a desire on Paul's part to see Jews reject the idea of a payment due and return to covenant loyalty founded upon grace. How on earth do you get that out of God justifies the wicked? And Wright, looking at these same passages, begrudgingly acknowledges that Paul is using a bookkeeping metaphor, but simply overlooks the import of Paul's language here. Wright just kind of skates over the top of this. Working is not a reference to someone's standing. It's a reference to somebody's actions, is it not? Now, what's especially problematic in this Romans 4 passage is Paul uses David and and Abraham as examples. Abraham didn't even know of the ethnic boundary markers of the Jewish law. Why would Paul appeal to Abraham when Abraham didn't know the dietary laws, the feast days? He had none of these ethnic badges that Jews had obeying the law of Moses. Oops. Yet another critical passage, Galatians 2, 15-16. If by faith and not by works... Dunn argues that Paul's not referring to an initiatory act of God, justification when he speaks of being justified, but is instead speaking of an acknowledgement that one is already numbered among the people of God. So Dunn will make the point, this isn't an initiation, this is a declaration of status. Now, that fits with Dunn's assertion that works of the law doesn't mean good works with the goal of attaining righteousness, because according to Dunn, Paul is saying that Jews cannot exclude Gentiles because of the presence of faith in Jesus, even on the part of Gentiles. That shows that both Jew and Gentile belong to the people of God. And yet, while Dunn's clear that righteousness does not come by works, it comes only through faith, Dunn absolutely cannot explain how it is that that doctrine doesn't fit with what falls in Galatians 3.10, where Paul writes, for all who rely on works of law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law to do them. Now, pray tell, how does abiding and doing refer to status and not action? Dunn just got dead telling us this has to do with Gentile ethnic badges. They're standing. And yet Paul speaks of abiding and doing And so to put it yet another way, Paul's speaking of action, obligation, keeping the whole law. Dunn turns around and says, well, this is a deficient uh, notion of the law held by Jews, in which they saw themselves as privileged, while the gospel declares that both Jew and Gentile are righteous. Is that what works of law means? When Paul himself goes on to say this has to do with abiding and doing, Obligation? I don't think so. And so, in this case, Dunn says the law refers to status. Well, Paul speaks as clearly as he can of abiding, doing them as keeping the commandments and relying upon. It's, ang- it's action language, not language of status. So it seems to me, then, that Dunn's take on this is positively wrong, and that Dunn, having assumed his theory must force verses like that to say something they don't say. 
And that does not help us understand Paul. In fact, it's a theory in search of facts to support it. This is this rationalist grid being imposed on the text, the very thing we're accused of doing. Now, I admit it's a, it's a, it's a problem on every established tradition. Wants to not see the envelope pushed. They want to see the boundaries stay where they've always been. I realize that's a problem, certainly in the Reformed confessional tradition. We always have to, that's why, again, I think the new perspective is important because it helps us to push that envelope again and see if the lines are really where we said they were. It's a good exercise to go through. But who's forcing the data into the theory as opposed to allowing the data to determine the boundaries of the theory? This is the old scientific method question again. You know, what do you do when you have data that doesn't fit the model? Does the model go or does the data go? And that's, you know, that's a, that's a long-standing question. These are, these are hypotheses we test. Uh, this is a different standard of proof than we would have in Euclidean geometry or, or mathematics. Here we have to say which interpretive model makes the best sense of the whole Paul. And I think it's pretty clear that new perspective is, is defaulting in a number of places. And as a matter of fact, the old traditional model of Luther, even without tweaking, does a better job than this one. And if you tweak Luther, especially in light of some of the insights from Calvin and some of the insights from New Perspective, you get a model that really does explain almost everything in Paul without a lot of tweaking. So I kind of like the old perspective, frankly. I think it made much better sense of Paul than this does. Now, again, I have to point out here, because we're out of time already, that just go through and read Venema and Piper and Waters and Schreiner and Seyfried and Westerholm, Seyun Kim and others, and they'll make the same argument from you know a number of places in Paul where the New Perspective tell us that works of law cannot refer to an initiation, a justification. It refers rather to a declaration of who was already in the church. So I, I would ask you to do some more reading on your own. We just possibly can't cover all that tonight. Now, in conclusion, at best, new perspective challenges our long-held assumptions. I think that's a good thing. It's good to have your comfort zone tested. I think it's good to have, to be poked and prodded, to have these questions asked so that we can see, was Luther right? Did Luther's explanation make sense? Did Calvin's explanation make sense? I think this is an important exercise. So um, it's a good thing in that regard. New perspective advocates have certainly enhanced our understanding of Second Temple Judaism. That certainly be commended. And they've highlighted the Jew-Gentile problem in the letters of Paul. Um, let me give you one example of where this is, I think, a huge improvement. You used to hear some of our divines and some of our, our commentators and especially kind of the average Joe, you know, Joe Sixpack reform guy, that the book of Romans was kind of the systematic theology of the Christian faith. And then there, Paul lays out a theological... No, 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 no. The book of Romans is an occasional letter written to a church with particular issues to which the apostle is writing. In that sense, it's important for us to look at context. Why were these letters written? What is the issue... So when we're pushed to, to those kinds of questions again, that's really a good thing. And it actually helps us make better sense of Romans. It may help us make better sense of our raw theology. That's, that's a great exercise. But from this short survey, it should be clear, I think, the new perspective doesn't 
enhance our understanding of Paul, it clouds it. In fact, it even distorts it. Because it tells us we can't understand Paul unless we understand Second Temple Judaism. What if Paul is responding to a form of Judaism not mentioned in any of the Second Temple Judaistic sources? It's theoretically possible. There's certainly some overlap between them. The issue for us as Christians as we exegete the New Testament has to be, what are the issues Paul is dealing with? And how does our knowledge of Judaism help us understand that as opposed to saying what Second Temple Judaism is dealing with, that is what Paul is dealing with. Methodologically, that's just not, that's not correct. That, that's the rationalistic uh, grid being forced down on the text. Now, as we'll see next time, we'll get a little more specific here. We'll see that New Perspective falls very, very short in dealing with covenant. I'll, I'll uh, raise Horton's thesis with you with imputation, especially with the meaning and purpose of the cross. I think that, again, is the, the big weakness of New Perspective. What exactly is Jesus doing when he's suffering and dying on the cross? And what about all that atonement language in the New Testament? What exactly is that? Is that just God's victory over the powers? Well, if there's no imputation... That's all it is. If Jesus isn't dying for guilt imputed to him, then what else is there for him to do? So, what about justification? What about righteousness? Is righteousness a property of the judge or is righteousness something God gives to us through faith? That's Dunn's whole point, that righteousness is a reference to the righteousness of the judge, not to the righteousness he imputes to sinners. What about good works? Is there any language in the New Testament of, of not doing good works in order to be justified? What about the positive role of good works? Do we, as right is asking us to do, do good works so that we're vindicated on the last day on the basis of a whole life lived? It's pretty scary. Suppose for a second right is correct. And Judgment Day, of course we don't know whether it's a hell or not, but Judgment Day is being vindicated on the basis of your whole life lived. That's the good news of the gospel. I don't think so. I have good news for you. You're going to be judged on your whole life. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. Now, again, I think the great irony here is that in my humble opinion, I've seen this stuff before. This is warmed over Pelagianism. This is the right himself says you will be judged on the basis of a whole life lived. Based on the Spirit enabling you to do good. We've heard this before. It is at the end of the day, this is back to C.H. Dodd, it's back to the English liberalism without the animosity toward the miraculous. This, this comes out of the stream of, of Dodd and all the rest of them that want to soften all the edges, that want to, to remove that language of wrath. That God isn't wrathful on people. There's just a divine reciprocity principle. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. This is right out of that old guard, not German liberal school, but English-American liberal school that isn't nearly as radical. But it's certainly as moralistic. All we have is a Pelagianism at the end of the day with a Christus Victor doctrine of the atonement. And while I nevertheless want to commend the New Perspective folk for their ingenuity, um, there's nothing in here that's really new. In this, we've seen this stuff before. 
Now, despite the animosity toward Luther and confessional Protestant churches, the irony is that Luther, I think, made much more sense out of Paul than does the New Perspective. And maybe Westerholm's right. Maybe it's time for some of these guys to take up current metallurgy. I'm being facetious, of course, but Westerholm gave me permission to say that. <clears throat> now, the ecumenically driven New Perspective seriously defaults on some of the very points it's trying to establish. One, New Perspective advocates misrepresent Luther, and they misrepresent the traditional interpretation of Paul. I'll grant you, Bultmann misread Paul in many ways, but Bultmann is not the model we are using for our law-gospel distinction nor for justification. And it's evident, I think, that these New Perspective men would benefit greatly from reading the recent confessional critiques of their efforts to weigh very seriously what someone like John Piper says to Wright. I would love to hear Wright's response to Piper's book. I'd love to hear Wright respond to some of the Reformed guys who've gone through this point by point. Second thing, new perspective, cannot fully explain the works and merit emphases in the literature of Second Temple Judaism, the very thing they claim isn't there. Um, as time goes by, I think we're coming to a more balanced assertion that Second Temple Judaism is very complicated and uh, there is not a covenantal gnomism tradition unanimously taught there. You find elements of it. You also find elements of merit theology. You find elements of works righteousness, the very things that these guys tell us isn't there. It's very, very complex. Third, Dunn and Wright's understanding of works of the law is contrived at best, and it cannot explain the obvious thrust of Paul's argument throughout a number of his epistles. To argue that Paul is speaking of status only and not works, action, is from the text we the few texts we've covered is self-evidently wrong-headed on its face. And fourth, at the end of the day, the new perspective's desire to flatten out the distinctions between Judaism and early Christianity misses the whole point of the dispute we find in the New Testament between Jews and Gentiles. Yes, both Jews and Gentiles in the church acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. But the issue is not simply Christ's person, but his work. Where does the cross fit in? And what does the cross actually do? And what about those Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah? They're in the covenant. Are they righteous? I mean, these are questions that just hang out there that remain unanswered. Where do those Jews stand? And if righteousness is a statement about the character of the judge, not the one standing before the judge, why does Paul continuously use bookkeeping and forensic language? And what about sin? And where does that fit? Those things are just pushed off to the, to the edges and glossed over. When in fact, I think that Luther made the case pretty compellingly that those things are at the center of Paul, not on the periphery. And so, as we'll see next time, these are just some of the ways in which the new perspective, I think, distorts our understanding of Paul and Judaism and the Reformation. And we'll get specific and look at uh, the cross and imputation, righteousness, covenant, and justification as we conclude. Well, there you have it. Part one of the critique against the new perspectives. I think Dr. Riddlebarger did a fine, fine job. So you don't want to miss next week's uh, conclusion of our 
series on uh, the new perspectives on Paul. Now, if you are growing in your biblical understanding, how to defend the Christian faith, what it is you believe and why you believe it, please join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew and support this important radio outreach so that we can continue to bring it to you as well as to other people. You can uh, do that by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Join Our Crew button. And uh, it's a mere $6.95 a month. It automatically comes out of your account every month on the uh, the monthly anniversary of when you join the crew. And when you join the crew, we will send you an email giving you access to our secret pirate Christian radio cove. And that, that's a growing treasure trove of theological resources plundered from all over the uh, history of the Christian church designed to help you grow deeper in your understanding of scripture and sound doctrine and biblical theology. You can do that again, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button, and if you'd like to uh, donate a flat amount of money, you can also do that by uh, clicking the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, folks, I hope that you have a great weekend. I know I will. I hope. <laughs> I don't sound so confident there. Anyway, I hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for working so hard in the vocation God has put, in, has put you in, because by doing so, you're serving your neighbor, including myself. So uh, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross, even for a sinner such as you. Yeah, that's right. Christ died for you. We'll see you next, well, not see you, we'll uh, hear you, well, you'll hear me next week. (laughs) Until then, God bless you.